You don't know about these additives because the wine industry has spent tens of millions of dollars in lobby money with their friends in Washington, D.C. to keep contents labeling off of wine. Hmm. Wine is the only major food product without a contents label. And that's not an accident. The wine industry regularly lobbies to keep these efforts down to put a contents label on it because the wine industry does not want you to know what's really in it. Right. Even like the carb content, it is, it is always very interesting. Every other liquid, there's There's no nutritional, pro, yeah, there's no no nutritional, nutritional profile required. Yep. And many wines contain sugar and a lot of sugar. Welcome to the HVMN Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Wu, and thank you for tuning in. This is a fun episode for our 21 and older listeners. Let's raise our glasses and toast Todd White, CEO of Dry Farm Wines, the program. Dry Farm Wines is known as a biohacking-friendly wine. Is that even a real thing? Todd's quite a biohacker and deep into the ketogenic diet and fasting. We start off our conversation by first diving into the cognitive benefits of the ketogenic diet and explore Todd's other biohacks. And then we move into the meat of the episode, wine. Let's get real. Alcohol is a neurotoxin and is not great for performance. I've personally limited my consumption to about one drink every couple of months. So why would a self-proclaimed biohacker and health-conscious person like Todd make a company around it? That's what we hope to answer here. More broadly, what are some of the dirty secrets and production loopholes of the wine industry? And how can a wine become sugar-free and keto-friendly? Todd and I explore all these topics and much more. If you enjoy this episode and feel like Dry Farm Wines is a product that fits your lifestyle well, visit www.dryfarmwines.com HVMN. Through that link, Todd has been kind enough to hook you up with a one penny bottle. That's right, a one penny bottle of wine along with your purchase. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Todd, welcome to our San Francisco headquarters. I am super happy to be here. I spent the night in San Francisco last night, just a few blocks away. Okay. So enjoyed a brisk walk here. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit foggy today, but at least you're missing a lot of like the big rain that was happening over the last couple of weeks. I brought my dog, so I was out in the rain this morning just a bit. It's misting, but it's cleared off now. Yeah. So you have a very interesting background, a serial entrepreneur, been in the real estate game, and then been quite a constant biohacker over the last, what, decade or so? Well, I would say I was a biohacker before it was called biohacking. Okay. So probably been active, really seriously focused for probably 15 years, maybe a little bit longer, uh, 16, 17 so years. So early 2000s. Yeah. And what instigated you to go on that journey? I've always been a lifelong learner and curious experimenter. I started experimenting with the Atkins diet, actually, was sort of what led me down the path, using it as a weight loss tool, not fully understanding at that time, nor did anyone else really about ketosis and the benefit of being ketotic. And, right. you know, although Atkins was the leader in the ketogenic diet. So at that time, there was not really any methods to accurately or easily measure ketones other than urine sticks, mm -hmm. which he recommended. He talked about ketosis, but it just wasn't really a thing. So I started experimenting with it to manage weight loss. So were you coming into it from a weight perspective? I mean, today, I was initially. you look, you know, quite trim and, well, I'm, and fit. I'd, so I'm I've just been curious. Keto, to I've been fully ketotic, ketotic for about five years now. So I'm very lean. Yeah. Even I have the sweater and things on today, but I'm, I'm super lean and have been for many years now. But at, I have a body type that can struggle with pesky weight gain. Okay. So right? early 2000s. I'm carbohydrate intolerant. Okay. Yeah. So I started experimenting and, and then from there, it became really quite serious about five or six years ago when I kind of went full in on uh, a regular meditation practice, a cold thermogenesis, ketogenic diet, regular fasting, mm -hmm. right? So these protocols really got very, very serious about five years ago. 
And what triggered that? So it sounded like the initial exploration was around weight management and it seemed like you got some value insight there. And then was, do you remember there was a trigger moment five years ago where it's like, okay, I want to spend even more time going down this rabbit hole? I think it was really the cognitive benefits of two experiments. One, meditation, and two, the ketogenic diet. Okay. And when I say cognitive benefits, so initially I experimented with keto to lose weight. After the weight loss was successful, or I reached a point where I just stabilized and didn't lose any more weight, then I really continued the protocol for cognitive benefits. And so I was seeing a really remarkable increase in things like short-term memory hmm. and energy and other benefits, other cognitive benefits, both with meditation as well as the ketogenic diet. So, and I've just maintained now, as we were discussing earlier, now I have sort of moved my focus from keto, which is just sort of a lifestyle, to a pretty meaningful fasting regimen. Which I think is interesting. I think if you talk to folks in this broader community of low-carb or keto, I think it's a split into two camps. One camp that started from a weight management perspective coming into, the, into this community. And I'll say the other half, which I think is more recent, is people looking for performance. And I would say that that's kind of my school of how I entered in the ketogenic low-carb area where I've always been fairly lean and I didn't look at this as a way to manage weight. It was like, okay, there's interesting data and anecdotes from a performance perspective and the data seem reasonable. Why does this even work? So it sounded like we're coming at the same metabolic intervention from kind of a two different starting places, but are very much seeking, I think, the same things now, which is probably, I, I would imagine, relating to performance, longevity, and the happy medium between those two. When you say performance, for me, it's, I'm an athlete. There's certainly benefit to my athletic performance from a ketogenic lifestyle, but the real performance I'm interested in is cognition, mm -hmm. right? And then, as you mentioned, not only longevity, but managing the aging process. So we know categorically that both calorie restriction as well as ketogenic diet significantly reduces inflammation and significantly slows down or even reverses aging. I mean, I can look at someone, even a young person, nearly everyone on my staff is keto or certainly low carb. Most are keto and most are active in some kind of fasting protocol. But when they show up as a new hire, and I watch them, how they transform, even when they're young and even when they're already lean and you see them go keto or adapt to fasting program, you'll see a change in their facial structure mm -hmm. that, again, these are people who are lean, but you'll see a change in their facial structure where they're just losing inflammation. And when I look at photographs of myself, even six or eight years ago, just before I became ketogenic, you can see kind of just what I call kind of a melon head. You know, you're just a little puffy, puffy right? Yeah, no, you're like, just puffy. Yeah. I, I think uh, I've noticed that in myself. I think just anecdote N equals one personally. You know, I've been somewhat lean, but I think sure. the body composition is much better in terms of much less adipose tissue around your abdominal areas. I think sure. the face leans out a little bit. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. So when I meet people, you know, we're the official wine for 170 health and performance events around the United States. We have four this weekend. So when I meet people at conferences and they tell me they're keto, I can look at them and know whether they're ketogenic or not. <laughs> and many people who say they're keto, unfortunately, are not really keto. Yeah. And either they're delusional or they just don't know, or maybe they're selling or marketing some product that is in the ketogenic space and they claim to be ketogenic, but you can look at someone, you can look at their face and tell whether they're keto. Or you can smell off their breath maybe. Well, <laughs> I don't get that close to them, but usually, but you can usually look at them and see. Yeah. So it sounds like you really tapped into it from a subjective cognitive space. Were you quantitative in terms of looking at finger sticking in terms of blood? Were you doing lipid panels through vein draws? I mean, obviously I think a lot of value can be gained from the subjective experiential benefits of being in a ketotic state or being in a fasted state. I'm curious, how much did you weigh from the experiential side? How much did you weigh from a quantitative biomarker side or both? Both. I've been tracking my blood panels for probably since 2008, 2007 or 2008 regularly. 
a couple times a year. Experimented with and still do from time to time with with pricking my finger for BHB, but I don't do it often. It's unpleasant. Yeah. Your fingers bruise over time. I don't do it often because I don't really need to because I know I'm in ketosis. It's not really important to me to be in the contest of whether I'm at, you know, 1.2 millimolars or 2.8. During extended fasting, you know, five or seven day fast, I will oftentimes measure ketones during that phase. One of the things I find interesting about the biomarker measuring my ketones is this relationship between how I feel, right, and where my ketone levels are. And so I sometimes manage during extended fast or if I'm experimenting with a food type. i give you an example. While this is not by any means a healthy pursuit, I happen to like French fries. Now, I like the, French fries the, too. <laughs> the primary problem with them is the seed oils that are usually fried in. Okay. But, you know, if we look back ancestrally and even back to, quote, unquote, paleo, we were eating a lot of tubulars and we were eating in-ground starches, although, you know, they do have an effect on your carbohydrate intake. Right. And they can convert to pretty quickly to blood glucose. So if I want to experiment with something like French fries, then I will do food experiments to see what my tolerance is to stay in nutritional ketosis, which I consider to be 1.0, one millimolar which is still or higher. High. And I feel my best between 1.2 and 2.2 millimolar. I'm in kind of my peak performance. Once I get up in the high twos, three, four, five millimolar, I find that the focus level, the cognitive response is so myopic. I get kind of in a tunnel state where flow state becomes very, very intense and very narrow. I can't see things around me. And I don't really enjoy that. While I think it could have some temporary benefit if you were working on some specific project. Right. Right. It could have some temporary benefit. But I don't enjoy the day in and day out experience that kind of tunneled myopic view, right? And which it's also I also hard to sustain at yeah. a three O millimole range as well. I just fasted. don't. I don't enjoy the way it feels. Okay. And so, as a biohacker, you know, I oftentimes refer and default to the proverb: "To feel is to understand," because many of the practices that biohackers engage in, there's, and this is certainly true, particularly of nutrition, because we don't really have any control group studies on nutrition, unless we're going to jail people. There's not any ethical way to get really quality information there. It's all epidemiological. Right. So oftentimes when there's not data to support our practices, then we have to default to how we feel, right? And to feel is to truly understand. And once we're in touch with our body and we understand what that feels like, most people have no idea what it really feels like to feel great, right? This yeah. is this, this human condition, just like even like wine as an example, which we might even talk about wine today. Yeah, let's get it. I mean, we will, definitely. But even with wine, when people drink conventional wines that they see in their store or in the restaurant, they think that's just what wine makes them feel like. And they think that's what wine tastes like. That's actually not what real wine tastes like or makes you feel like. Right. Right. And so until you get away from this conditioning, same thing for most people who are eating the standard American diet, the sad diet. They have no idea what it feels like to eat in a way that our body will respond you know, in a favorable way. They just don't have any idea. I mean, this neurotoxin that is sugar, Yeah, it would be hard to imagine that sugar would be legal today. Yeah. One of the things that I found interesting is that there's been an increase in backlash or pushback from popular media against fasting or keto. I just talked to a reporter from Guardian last week, then an article came out about the extreme fasting of Silicon Valley or biohackers. And then I think I almost revert back to the point that there's also no data on the standard American diet, the standard Western diet, and how terrible that is. I mean, the data point there is that everyone's getting diabetic and obese, 
And uh, that's what I consider almost disordered eating as opposed to the default. You know, if that's a default that is creating something terrible, you you got to let people experiment and see what works for them. And like just critiquing people searching or experimenting themselves seems to be overly conservative at best or really harmful at worst. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think the data points that we have on the Western diet, it's now pervasive throughout the world, but or most all of the world, but where we have instances of Western diet coming to places where they had ancestral diets and seeing that where there was virtually no heart disease or no diabetes or n- n- very low rates of cancer, right? And then we see this kind of spike and explosion in Western chronic diseases where the diet has been adapted. I think that's pretty clear. Yeah, Gary Taubes, uh, has a, he was on right. a podcast and I think he explains that very well in his books. But if we pull back and we experiment with things like elimination diets or everybody's different. So the, there's not a prescription it's not a dietary prescription for everyone. Yeah. You know, I, I think the curious learners and the people who want to self-experiment, you know, the biohackers, if you will, which is a pretty growing movement. Yeah. I don't understand the press and the traditional media, uh, traditional medicine, their obsession with, you know, the dangers of the ketogenic diet. I just don't see any anecdotal evidence to support it at all. Right. I travel to virtually every ketogenic conference in the United States and have a lot of experience with keto and a lot of experience seeing other people adapt it. I'm talking about like authentically adapt it. Yeah. If you're not doing blood testing, I mean, you could start off with the urine sticks, which is good and well. But if you are seriously committed to a ketogenic diet and ketogenic lifestyle, then, you know, you're going to have some period of of measurement. Yeah. And then the other thing is the sort of cycling in and out seems to be quite popular. But from my perspective, particularly as, a, as someone who's engaged in regular fasting, until you become fat adaptive, which is a four to eight week process yeah. of pretty strict compliance, until you become fat adaptive and really retrain your body, I think being keto is quite uncomfortable. The adaptation period is quite uncomfortable. But once you're it there— It can be. Yeah. It can be. But once you adapt— then it's you know, quite then smooth. it's quite easy, and it also makes fasting quite easy. Yep. And people who try to fast who are not keto, I, I remember fasting a few times when I was younger, and not being keto is, is quite unpleasant. Yeah, that's the hangriness feeling, or you're just angry, or just light. Just angry. Yeah. In fact, when I would cycle in and off of what was then the ketogenic diet, my staff at the time, when I would cycle in and out of Atkins, just using it to kind of ratchet back weight. So I'd go on Atkins for like a couple of weeks, right. you know, lose eight, 10 pounds and go back to standard diet. And my staff, I would kind of have to warn them that I was going to be dieting yeah, because I would just be angry. <laughs> I want to circle back to one of your points around how you feel as a really good benchmark. I think that's the right way I think people should treat it. I think like ideally, you have all the metrics that quantify and justify how you're feeling. But I think people shouldn't be afraid to just realize, hey, like I feel good or bad on this kind of intervention. And that should be your initial template. And I think if you really want to take it to the next level in terms of just realizing, hey, is this a little bit of a placebo effect or not? Then I think adding the quantitative markers, I think as you get more curious, is important. But I think just from a broad perspective of how we take the movement from you know, niche audiences and how we get this to everyone in the world eventually, hopefully, allowing these different shades of how one can enter the community, I think is probably productive. Yeah, I would like to see a widespread adoption of ketogenic diet, but I'm not sure that's going to happen. It's very difficult for people to comply for whatever reason. Well, just that there's so much easy standard Western diet snacks everywhere. There is, and there's also a social stigma associated for many, many people. This is not true for me, probably not true for you. Everyone I'm surrounded around is professionally and socially is adaptive of biohacking or a healthier lifestyle. But for most people, particularly in their work environment, there's a tremendous amount of stigma associated with being different. Yeah. And it's also very difficult. I remember when 
my last business, which is five or six years ago, it was in a more traditional office setting where there was the break room. And while I wasn't keto at that time, it was certainly low carb and certainly sensitive to my sugar intake. But it was always somebody's birthday or vendors would bring donuts and bagels and all kinds and orange juice, for God's sakes, yeah. right, into the office setting. And so, you know, when you walk past these things like somebody's birthday cake and it's just super easy, just like take a little pinch. Yeah. And people are there ridiculed for not participating in the A lot of peer pressure. Right. So it's very difficult. And also for people with kids or with a spouse that's not compliant, you know, it's very, very difficult when these things are in your house. You came you know, Ben Greenfield was at my house recently. We did his podcast outside. And he came in and he wanted something to eat before we recorded. I have anything in the house to eat. <laughs> I had one bag of pork rinds and a bag of almonds. Yeah. And that's what he, but but he just remarked and I hadn't really thought about it. There's just nothing in my house to eat. Right. <laughs> and so I live alone and there's not food there. I rarely eat there. And if I do, I shop to eat. Yeah. Right. And I certainly don't have any kind of snack type products. That's like kind of similar to me. I like kind of the only snack things I'll have is like either cheese, pork rinds, sure. almonds, nuts. And then I know that when I have some holiday chocolates around laying around and you're just, and it's like there, it makes it so much easier or you're, you're just tempted to go towards it. So if you have just, yeah, I just don't, I just don't have anything. Table. So I wasn't really conscious. It's just the result of not buying anything, yeah. you know, it wasn't really planned. I just don't snack, so I don't have any reason to have those things around. So I want to get to your current protocol. So it sounds like you've really been experimenting for a bunch of different methods, interventions. Now, what is Todd doing on a consistent basis now? Like what things that you tried in the past you thought were not validated, not interesting, overhyped, kind of BS, what things have really stuck with you as something that you think are legitimate and something that has added a lot of value to your life? The only thing I, I've changed that I think didn't make me feel optimal was I cut back saturated fat. I'm not here to argue its benefits or its, or its inherent dangers, I, just the way it made me feel. So I was early on in keto and for quite some time, I had a much higher intake of saturated fat. Hmm. Today, my fat intake is primarily olive oil and tallow and butter, which the tallow and the butter obviously are saturated, saturated right. but I'm not taking in high amounts of saturated fat. Okay. So are which, you cutting back on red meat as well? I feel better not eating it. Okay. I still eat it. I eat it on a regular basis. We could talk about my moral objections around it and the way animals are treated is morally just incomprehensible. But aside from that... And I think it's an interesting um, discussion where I think people never address it separately. I think there's definitely a moral question around eating other mammals. But I think this should be orthogonal to the health impact. I think people kind of conflict it too, but I think that's, that's something interesting. Well, I'm still eating it in spite of my the incomprehensible moral conflict I find with the, with the cruelty of the way these animals are treated. I still right. eat it anyway. Yeah, I just feel better if I eat it less often. Okay. So an ideal diet for me is sort of plant and fish and a liberal dose of high-quality olive oil. Mm -hmm. I eat a little bit of coconut oil, but I used to eat a lot more. Yeah, I used more to drink a lot of fat. Okay, right? MCT oils or uh, you know coffee. You know, fatted coffee. I don't yeah. drink anymore, primarily because I do twenty-two hour, twenty-three hour fasting daily. So, except a little bit of coffee and green tea, I don't take in any other forms of anything in my body other than water. Primarily green tea and occasionally a cup of coffee. Okay but no fat during the daytime. Interesting. So that's not trivial to take most of your fat from plant and fish. So are you eating a lot of avocados, nuts? Those I tend do. to be your sort of Avocados and nuts, then? both. A lot of fatty fish, a lot of olive oil. Okay. But I also stopped taking most supplements. I used to take, you know, this massive, 
handful of, you know, some 20 or 30 supplements a day. I discontinued that four or five years ago. I actually found that I felt better not taking them. Mm. I felt like they were a toll. Uh, the processing of them just felt to be a toll on my body. Mm. So now I take NAD and, a, you know, some mineral supplements, but not taking this massive handful of this, that, and the other yeah. that had accumulated over a number of years. But other than some really expensive urine, I just wasn't feeling that they were benefiting me. And I just felt like the toll of processing on my body when I quit taking them, I just I just felt like that processing toll was much lower. Yeah, I agree. So, I think most, like a lot of supplements are just like a kitchen sink in there. And if you want something specific, just get the something specific as opposed to having 30 things in, in your hand. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, that, that, that's just my experience. Again, yeah. you, you experiment with different things. When I cut back, you know, I used to, my fat intake with ketogenic diet was just much higher. Mm -hmm. It's lower today than it was historically. I feel better not eating so much fat. Whether or not it's healthy or unhealthy, I'm not here to argue that point one way or the other. I think there's plenty of data to show that moderate to moderately high fat intake is perfectly healthy. Yeah, It's just the way high intake of saturated fat was making me feel personally. Right. Yep. right? And so uh, basically I get up, I have a cup of green tea in the morning, and first thing I do, whether I'm in a hotel room as I was last night or at home, I make my bed right, to add order to the room and a sense of, you know, an early win. Yeah. I really like the order that it creates within the room. I meditate for about 40 minutes. And, uh, right in I the finish, morning? Yeah, first thing in the morning. My staff then also meditates together when we meet at 10 a.m. We don't meet until 10. Everybody has protecting their mornings. And then from 10 to 11, my staff also meditates together, but most of us, myself included, have an individual meditation practice that I meditate usually about 7 o'clock in the morning, between 6 and 7. Mm -hmm. I have a 40-minute session. And you meditate again with your staff between 10 I and do. 11. I do. And then I begin with a cup of green tea, and I fast. Occasionally, I have a cup of coffee, not daily. And then I eat between 6 and 7 at night, and that generally includes a bottle of wine. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I want to get to the the wine story because I think that's interesting. So that's a pretty interesting schedule. So ketogenic diet plus regular sort of OMAD one meal a day style fasting. And I want to just clarify for our listeners here, when Todd's talking about lowering saturated fat intake, you're probably then boosting up monounsaturated fat in terms of, you know, nuts, more of the uh, vegetable. But it sounds like you still are avoiding a lot of the seed oils, right? Like the poofas. Yeah, uh, for sure. Okay. For sure. Except in the occasional indulgence of French fries, okay. which I know are fried in unhealthy fats. But right. other than that, I don't eat them at all. I eat a lot of olive oil. I've always liked the taste of high-quality fresh olive oil. Yeah. It's just a You're just drinking it straight? No, 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 with vegetables <laughs> or fish uh, okay. or— I eat probably more a kind to a Mediterranean diet is, is sort of what I love the Mediterranean. I love yeah. the food there. I love the diet. Grilled fish, grilled vegetables, roasted vegetables, sautéed olive oil, garlic, just sort of very Mediterranean. Hey, listeners, Jeff here with Brianna. Hello. Bri and I have very much enjoyed the journey that is this podcast and the HVMN YouTube channel. It's been a lot of fun reading your comments and thoughts. Trust us, we've been reading them. We've seen an influx of feedback the past few months, and we wanted to do a better job of opening the line of communication here and include you, ladies and gents, in our programs more. And that's why we want to do a Q&A episode where we'll be answering your questions directly. Hopefully we won't regret this, but your questions can be a free for all. Whether you want to know more about the role of ketones in metabolism, Brianna's world champion rowing days and our time studying metabolism at Oxford, my 30-mile birthday run and my other biohacking experiments, questions about any HVMN product, entrepreneurship tips, startup tips, ask us anything. Yes, anything. It's an open invite. So message us your questions at podcast at hvmn.com. We're going to collate them throughout this month and release the episode soon after that. Again, thank you all for continuing to tune in. We're both excited to record this Q&A episode. And if it goes well and questions keep coming, perhaps we'll start including a regular Q&A segment in our normal programming. There's still a lot of room for this show to continue to grow. And we can't wait for you all to see what we have planned. Now, back to the podcast. So, I mean, we've been talking around wine, and obviously that's a big part of what you do now. And 
one of the initial questions coming into the space is that obviously from a biohacker performance perspective, ethanol, alcohol is not great for performance. No question about so, it. So, yeah, and I think that's just maybe the elephant in the room. How do you reconcile that? It's no elephant in the room for me. Okay. I will tell you that alcohol is a super dangerous neurotoxin. And there is no evidence to support that it enhances performance in any way, <laughs> right? That being said, it does enhance just one small area, which we'll talk about, which is creative expression and the access to being emotionally available. And so when we can increase our emotional availability to others, this is the reason people bond over alcohol, mm-hmm. right? And many bromances are created around alcohol, right? And, and so romances. To the extent that <laughs> it, it is valuable just for that one area, but then it matters, then dosage matters, right? So dosage matters, quality matters. But the fact is that ethyl alcohol is a super dangerous neurotoxin that kills thousands of people every year and destroys the lives of tens of thousands of more, yeah. right? And so alcohol is something that we have to be extremely careful with. So it's always surprising to people to hear that the wine guy says, hey, alcohol is a super dangerous neurotoxin. The fact of the matter is we have to be very careful with it, which is why we only drink and sell low alcohol wines, Hmm. right? Alcohol levels in wine have risen steadily over the last three decades, So all wines up until about 30 or 40 years ago were in the similar alcohol range of, oh, 11 to 12 and a half percent. Today, average American wines are tipping out almost at 15 percent. Yeah, that's my guess, 13, 16 percent, pretty common. 15 percent, statistically. We don't sell any wine over 12 and a half percent. And most of the wines I drink are between 10 and 11 and a half. So the amount of alcohol contained in a wine also has a significant impact on how the wine tastes, right? I don't really like alcohol at all. I just happen to love wine. And for wine to taste like wine, it's got to have a certain amount of alcohol in it. So the more alcohol you remove from the wine, the less it starts to taste like wine. Turns into juice, basically. Right. So basically, we sell wines between 6% and 12.5%. So okay. once a wine gets below 9% in alcohol, it doesn't really start to taste like what you think of wine anymore. You know, it starts to taste more like kombucha or s- sort of a fresh, light, kind of war- more watery type hmm. beverage. And typically it tastes better at lower alcohol if it's chilled, whether it's, it doesn't matter what color it is red or white, but the lower the alcohol, the it's kind of more of a summer type. It's kind of a more refreshing. It's not like a fine wine experience. Right. The wine industry loves alcohol, which is the reason that alcohol levels have risen steadily over the last few decades. As I said, reaching nearly 15% as an average now. The wine industry loves alcohol for a few reasons. One, alcohol is addictive. Number two, it's what I call a domino drug. So, Just as the dominoes fall, so the more alcohol you drink, the more you want to drink, right? Same thing, uh, cocaine is a domino drug, right? So it's like alcohol has this effect. And then the third reason is that it impairs our judgment. So as the dose level gets higher, then our judgment is impaired, which causes us to drink even more. Well, the wine industry wants you to drink more, and they want you to be addicted, Right. And so that's the reason that alcohol levels are higher. And there's one other reason. So the higher alcohol is in a wine, the more bold the wine will taste and the more rich the wine will taste. And so for the typical dead American palate, right, they need a bolder, richer wine in order to satisfy them because their palate's been killed by processed foods and sugar. So when you start eating a plant and fish-based diet and you start getting away from any kind of reasonably clean diet and you get away from processed foods and sugar, then how you taste food will change significantly. You'll have a restoration of your taste sensory. You don't any longer want bold, rich foods. In fact, just the opposite. You know, you want a lighter, cleaner palate. And so 
lower alcohol wines just taste fresher and cleaner and lighter. So, and I spend a lot of time talking about how dangerous it is. You know, I spend a lot of time telling people that, look, I'm a lifelong wine aficionado and I have a love affair and obsession with wines. I've been drinking wine since I was nine years old. I love wine. But the fact of the matter is a biohacker and somebody who, who's interested in anti-aging and who's interested in extending my health span in addition to my lifespan. But I'm really more concerned with my health span. Mm-hmm. I want to stay healthier and both physically and cognitively as long as I can. I'm almost 60, right? And so it's really important to me to now think about the next 60 years and what that looks like. And so cognitive performance and preservation is really, really important to me. And alcohol is very dangerous for your brain, right? And so I don't want to stop drinking. Maybe there's a case to be made that perhaps I'd be healthier if I didn't drink at all. And that may be true. I'm not going to debate that narrative, but I'm not going to stop drinking. I love drinking wine. And what I want to do is drink a healthier wine. Got it. And a lower alcohol wine and a sugar-free wine, right? And so, and a wine without additives. So let me share with you one of the little known dark secrets of the wine industry. There are 76 additives approved by the FDA for the use in winemaking and a list of some pretty nasty chemicals. You don't know about these additives because the wine industry has spent tens of millions of dollars in lobby money with their friends in Washington, D.C. to keep contents labeling off of wine. Wine is the only major food product without a contents label, and that's not an accident. The wine industry regularly lobbies to keep these efforts down to put a contents label on it because the wine industry does not want you to know what's really in it. Right. Even like the carb content, it is, it is always very interesting. Every other liquid, there's There's fat, no nutritional pro, yeah. profile required. Yep. And many wines contain sugar and a lot of sugar. Added sugar? No, it's not added. In the wine industry, it's known as RS or residual sugar. How sugar gets in wine is not added. It's from the fruit itself. It's from terminating the fermentation process before it completes a complete fermentation. So here's what, how wine is made. You've got the most common question that we get is how is wine sugar-free? Well, because isn't there sugar in grape juice? Yes, it's teeming with sugar. So how wine is made is that you press the juice from the berries. And if you're making white wine, it's just free-run juice. And this is another, I'll just talk for a minute about how red wine becomes red and why red wines are generally thought to be healthier than white wines. Red wine gets its color from contact with the skins. So if you squeeze the juice from a red berry and juice from a white berry, both of them are clear. And red wine gets its color once the juice is pressed, the skins are added to the tank. That's also what gives red wine tannins. And it's also what gives red wine the significant increase in antioxidants and polyphenols and flavonoids. There are over 800 polyphenols in red wine, just over 200 in white wine. And so this is the reason red wine is thought to be healthier. The best known of the polyphenols is resveratrol. That being said, so you squeeze the juice, you put it in a tank, and it's full of sugar. Yeast, either native or lab cultured, and we'll talk about this in a moment, yeast is activated in the grape juice, and the yeast eats the sugar. The result of that is carbon dioxide and ethyl alcohol. Now, here's how sugar gets in wine. If the winemaker does not allow the fermentation to complete, and a completed fermentation means that the yeast eats all of the available sugar, and so then the wine is sugar-free. But what's happening in commercial wines is that the winemaker is introducing sulfur dioxide to the wine prior to the fermentation completing, leaving residual sugars behind in the wine. Now, they do this for a number of reasons. Americans love sugar. They're addicted to sugar. And sugar gives wine more mouthfeel. It gives wine these long caramelly finishes that people love. 
right? That's glycerol in wine and sugar. And so it just gives it more mouth body and more lusciousness, even if you can't taste the sugar. So even as taste professionals, sometimes wine will contain sugar. We can't taste it. Now, at a certain level, you'll be able to taste it, like in sweet wines or dessert wines or ice wines or these late harvest types of wine, uh, natural, you can taste the sugar. But in standard red wines, because the acid levels are quite high, you may not be able to detect sugar on the palate for probably up to maybe 10 grams a liter, right? Commonly, we'll test a wine at three or four or five grams per liter of sugar and not be able to taste it. And we'll reject the wine from the lab test. So our process is that we first taste all natural wines, meaning they're additive-free, they're organically or biodynamically farmed, and they are fermented with wild native yeast. They're also unirrigated, meaning they're dry farmed. So these are our basic criteria. Then if we taste the wine and we like the aesthetic, then we take a lab sample. We send the sample to a certified third-party independent enologist who does a series of tests on the wine for us. Among the things we're looking for are sugar in the wine. There are many other things we're looking for, including alcohol. This is another little-known fact with the wine industry and the U.S. government. The alcohol stated on a bottle of wine is not required by law to be accurate. It's generally rounded down. So if it says 14% on the label, it can be as high as 15 and a half, and that's legal. Interesting. It's it just a minimum? It just no one is enforcing it? Or? There's zero enforcement around okay. it. And oftentimes it's outside of even the point and a half because nobody's enforcing that either. Right. Right? And so oftentimes if you're drinking wine that says 14%, it's 16 or 16 and a half. So you're, you're doing like good third-party certificates of analysis. So we have what we call the dry farms wine certification. And that certification comes with lab-tested quantifications, right? Mm -hmm. In addition to farming quantifications, then we also have these lab-tested quantifications. We're looking for pesticides. We're looking for mold, like mycotoxins, like ochratoxin A. We are looking for sugar. We're looking for alcohol. So, because we're biohackers, we I mean, this isn't marketing spin. We didn't create this business to go out and be super successful entrepreneurs. We created the business because I was looking for a healthier way to drink. Yeah. Right. And so we drink the same wines that we sell and we're super fanatic about our health and about biohacking. I mean, we're not only active in selling and evangelizing about healthy wines, but I and other Members of the team also speak around the world on fasting, on meditation, on the ketogenic diet. We just presented last year in Amsterdam to the Quantified Self Conference on fasting and wine. And also just on fasting, we also actually did a wine fast, sort of uh, <laughs> sort of as some comic relief. We did a three-day wine and water fast nice. and reported the results of that its impact on both blood glucose as well as ketones. Interesting. And there was a slight elevation in both on the wine-only fast, but statistically did not take us out of ketosis or have a statistical relevance on blood glucose, but it, there was just, just a slight elevation. Yeah, I remember seeing this old school paper. If you only had an alcohol-heavy diet, you actually kickstart ketosis even more. Right. Which is a... Uh, I mean, because alcohol, it just will shift the priority of your fueling, part, you know, reserves. Well, I mean, it's a substrate yeah. energy source. I mean, once you'd start drinking alcohol, I mean, that's going to be your primary energy source yep. until the body expels it yep. and processes it. And you obviously discharge it through your urine yeah. eventually, which is another reason. I mean, I don't drink during the daytime. I don't recommend anybody else does either. It's very common for people to have wine at lunch. I don't. Mm-hmm. don't recommend it. It's going to shut down fat burning, so... If fat burning is your objective, I mean, you don't want to be drinking anything. Yep. Because uh, fat burning is going to shut down. Yeah, but. anything exogenous is going to halt your internal fat right. burn, which makes right. sense. I wanted to circle back to one point you made. So your wines are low sugar because you don't stop the yeast fermentation process through an additive like a sulfur dioxide. So for avoidance of doubt or clarity, you essentially let the yeast run all the way through 
basically uh, ferment all the sugar and they essentially kill themselves because they run out of food. And then you have they a do. very low amount of sugar, residual sugar. And you prove that with your third party. So analysis. we do a lab test. We do not accept wines that exceed 0.9 tenths of 1%. So less than one gram per liter which is statistically sugar-free at the yeah. serving level, yeah. right? So most of our wines are like 0. 0.2, 0. 0.3 tenths of one point right. of one gram. So right. they're statistically sugar-free. It's not even, it's just barely measurable and it's not statistically important. Right. Commonly for store-bought wines, you will see sugar content from five to 50 grams per liter, right? Wow. So very common, 10, 15, 20 grams per liter. To give you a perspective, Coca-Cola is 32 grams per liter. And wines categorically can range from zero, as in the case of our wines, up to 300 grams per liter for a dessert wine yeah. or an ice wine. Now, those wines are super, super sweet. They taste super, super sweet. But you can get these store-bought wines quite commonly that contain 10, 15, 20 grams per liter, which is more sugar than I want to consume. Yeah. One other point that we mentioned just briefly, I want to touch on the difference between natural wines and conventional wines that you would see in your store. And there are only about a thousand natural wine farmers in the world, right? Is the fermentation with wild native yeast. So this is one of the hallmarks of what a natural wine is versus a conventional wine. Again, the differences are farming practices. So all natural wines are always organically or biodynamically grown. In our case, they're also non-irrigated. Less than 1% of all U.S. vineyards are unirrigated. Irrigation is largely a United States idea. Mm. Irrigation leads to higher yields and heavier fruit, fruit sold by the, by the ton. Okay. And when you fill a grape berry with water, it weighs more. Right. That's why you irrigate. Irrigate is, irrigation is illegal in most of Europe. Hmm. We don't even sell any domestic wines or no wines made in the So United how do you water the plants then if it's not through irrigation? They, they, they get water from, uh, like rainfall. from rainfall okay. and from breaking apart tiny pieces of soil and, and rock and mineral in search of minute amounts of moisture. So you're not adding Look, any water external from? No, there's no external water Whoa, at all. Okay, Grapevines have been living in, in, in on the earth for over 10,000 years, and they've never been irrigated. The, the Grapevines weren't irrigated in the United States until 1973. Hmm. Now virtually everything is irrigated in the United States. I live in the wine country. There's virtually no dry farming up there. And if you drive up there, you'll see irrigation hoses on every single vendor. Okay, so when you say dry farm, you literally mean no external water. You're just having Dry farming it means no rainfall. irrigation. Uh, no irrigation. Natural no, rainfall, no, natural, natural rainfall humidity and, in the dirt. Look, dry farming is more expensive. It's more difficult. It requires a lot more effort. Yeah, makes sense. And so it also has a tremendous impact, not only on the quality of the fruit, but also the health and the polyphenols inside the fruit. So irrigated fruit, which is diluted with water to cause it to weigh more, also dilutes the polyphenols in the fruit. So not only is it unhealthy for the planet, it's unhealthy for the vine, mm. it's also healthier, less healthy for you drinking it, right? But back to the yeast. So on the skin of every grape in the world, is native wild yeast. It collects on the skin. It looks like a whitish kind of waxy surface on the grape. You can see it. Yep. That's yeast, and it's collected in the air. So natural wines are fermented with wild native yeast that are indigenous to every vineyard, right? Commercial wines, no. Commercial wines or conventional wines, those that are not natural, are fermented with lab-grown, genetically modified yeast. These lab-cultured yeast have a few distinct advantages for the winemaker. So they're very sturdy, right? So they're, they're modified to be sturdy and strong. Wild native yeasts are very temperamental. They're very difficult to work with, and you can't make wine in very large quantities with a wild native yeast. It's too unstable. It's also wild native yeast will die at higher alcohol levels. And so these genetically modified lab-cultured yeast 
are designed to withstand high alcohol environments. It says so right on the package, right? And number three, they can be modified to have certain flavor profiles. So let's say that you're growing grapes in the Central Valley of California, but you want to make a wine that tastes like it's from Italy. Well, there's a yeast for that, right? And so these are the reasons that these commercial yeast are used almost exclusively uh, you could all but say 100% of conventional wines are always fermented with these genetically modified lab-cultured lab yeast. Now, we don't know what that means for your health. We know that when you drink natural wines, for sure, you feel better, right? It's probably a combination, in our case, of lower alcohol, of non-irrigation, of no additives, of not high doses of sulfur dioxide, which are sulfites in wine. All wines, whether they have added sulfur or not, contain sulfites. All fermented foods have sulfites. They're a part of the fermentation process. So even when you get a bottle of wine from us, even though we're testing for sulfites to make sure that they've not been added, there's sulfite in all wine. Yeah. It's naturally occurring, but it'll be very, very low amounts. You'll see, you'll see typically two to 10 parts per million of sulfites in naturally fermented wine without added sulfites. Sulfites can be as high as 75 parts per million without a added sulfite. Anything over 75 parts has definitely been added. And the rationale for adding sulfites would be what flavor or? Greed. So <laughs> it's very simple. So what sulfur dioxide does is sterilize the wine. Okay. And sulfur dioxide can be added by conventional winemakers at several points in the process. The first point where it can be added or is, is usually added is at the time of pressing, they use sulfur dioxide to kill the native yeast. But you can't have the native yeast and the commercial yeast present at the same time, right? So you use sulfur dioxide. It's an inconsistent process. Right. Pro well, it right? just won't. You have right. a broken fermentation. Yeah. So the first thing you do is you sterilize the wine, you kill all the available native yeast. Then you inoculate it with these genetically modified commercial yeast, right? That's the first time it's used. The second time it can be used and is often used is to stop the fermentation process, as we talked about earlier, to kill the commercial yeast, leaving behind residual sugar. And the third time that is used and used in the biggest dose is at bottling. And the reason it's used at bottling is to sterilize the wine. There's a number of problems with this. When you sterilize the wine, or what we call kill the wine, or mummify it, so you can McDonaldize it, right? So you create this consistent shelf stable product, product yep. that's very stable, right? That can withstand shipping irregularities and can withstand sitting on shelves for very long periods of times in, in unstable environments and temperature swings and all kinds. You sterilize the wine to kill any remaining bacteria in the wine. Now, natural wines are not sterilized. When you sterilize the wine in a commercial wine, you end up with this very McDonaldized kind of shelf-consistent product that's super, super stable, right? You've also killed all of the gut-friendly bacteria that exist in wine. So Dr. David Perlmutter just wrote a recent post about the gut-friendly bacterias that are in natural wines. He, among hundreds of other health leaders, endorsed our wines for this reason, for the reasons I've described to you already. But in addition to inside, inside natural wines are living bacteria. And when you sterilize the wine, this is the other reason that natural wines taste better and are more interesting, is that when you sterilize the wine with the sulfur dioxide, you're also killing the soul of the wine, you're killing this taste, this magic that is this living organism, these bacteria that are in natural wine, which just tastes more interesting and tastes better, right? And so you're killing this, what we call the soul of the wine, right? In addition to you're killing all this bacteria that makes the wine healthier. So that's where commercial wines see their biggest dose of sulfur dioxide. And so sulfur can range in commercial wines from 75 to 100 parts, up to 350 parts per million is the legal limit. Interesting. We will not accept a wine over 75 parts because you can be as high as 75 parts 
naturally occurring, but most of the wines that we test, most of them are between five and 25 parts per million, most. So that's interesting in terms of with the natural one, you have these living bacteria in there processing away. And obviously you hear in the news of these aged 30 plus year wines that are thousands, tens of thousands of dollars per bottle. Curious how being a natural wine, how does that product age while you're in that shelf? 90% of wines are consumed within 24 hours of purchase. <laughs> That's just a st- statistical fact. Makes sense. And probably another 9.9% are consumed within a month of purchase, right? So this concept that people are aging wine is for most people uh, is not true. I don't know anybody in the health circle who ages wine. I do know some collectors, but those are kind of cult wines and become, at times, investments, yep. right? Our wines are quite affordable. We don't sell expensive wine. Okay. We don't sell wine that is meant to be aged in a cellar, although natural wines will age fine for a number of years. But the wines we sell are meant to be consumed. They're fresh. They're alive. They're living, right? And so we're not really selling a collectible. Our wines average $22 per bottle, which is quite affordable for a handcrafted fine wine experience, right? So we're not selling a collectible thing. We're selling a – we're in the health food business. We just happen to sell wine. Got it. Right. And the wine we sell, we want you to drink and enjoy. Makes and sense. Talk for a minute about how alcohol can be an enhancement to your life and can be an enhancement to performance, as I mentioned earlier, and only in this one area. And that is in creative expression. So when we have low doses of alcohol, we become a little bit more creative in our thought. At least you're less inhibited. Right. We're less inhibited. We're less fearful. We're also more emotionally available. And this is a really, really important thing. When we become more emotionally available, then we spread and collect and generate more love. Our heart is open. We are just more available. And so when we can create love, I mean, I believe that we are wired to love and be loved. Right. And so wine brings more love in our life, right? If I'm going to drink wine, then I want to drink lower doses of alcohol, and I want to drink a wine that's healthier. Mm-hmm. But this creative expression, and it rolls down that window of vulnerability just a little bit and makes us a little more accessible. And anytime we can be more vulnerable, we're going to engender more trust with people. Trust is, from my perspective, the only real currency left in the world. Money's not a very valuable currency. Trust is. And we develop and engender more trust when we're more available. And when we stop hiding and start showing up, this is particularly important for men, you know, who need to find the confidence and self-awareness to rip off that mask of masculinity that was glued onto them when they were children, you know, with this expectation of, being strong and, stoic you know, and, stoic yeah. and the lion. When, when we, we can remove all this falseness that interrupted the innocence of our birthright, the innocence that we were born with, you know, we, we were born only fearing falling or loud noises, you know, the, the rest of these things that we learn, this mask that we put on, you know, when we can become more available this generates love and trust and connection with people. Yeah. Wine is very helpful in that, you know, as it is any low dose of alcohol. But wine is just, just more magical in so many ways, particularly living wines, natural wines, that have this kind of energy in the bottle. And you can taste it and feel it. And so it's just more uplifting. The buzz is more energized, but not as heavy. Like when I drink a commercial wine, I feel like I've been slugged in the head with some kind of blunt <laughs> object. Right. And yeah. so uh, these living wines are, are or definitely you feel that when you take a shot of vodka or something. Right. I mean, alcohol is, you know, like like the reason that natural wines taste better with food as well. Alcohol is not friendly to food. Right. I mean, you don't have a vodka with a salad. Right. Right. I mean, so alcohol doesn't taste good. So you've got to get this very low dose and then it becomes a lot more food friendly. 
Makes sense. I mean, it sounds like you're very quantified in terms of the health span equation. If you can get the emotional benefits from this wine and you control the negative aspects of it by lowering all the additives and all the processed stuff in terms of why you wouldn't want you know, too much ethanol in your life, can you find this happy medium where you get the benefits of alcohol without the downside? Or are you finding it's that pretty magic? low dose though. I mean, yeah. you, the, and, and here's the other thing. I mean, even if you think about drinking, most people don't have a glass of wine. They have several. Yeah. And so it's really important particularly if you're a regular wine drinker, I mean, it's really important to lower down the inherent amount of alcohol in the wine, which is why it's really super important to drink low alcohol wines. Because you're not, I don't care whether it's 16% or 11%, you're not likely to have a glass. Yeah. You're likely to have several. And again, because of this domino effect that alcohol has, the higher it is and the, the more likely you are to drink more. Yep. Right? And so... We want to give you an experience that allows you to have more than a glass, that allows you to still maintain control over that domino effect Yeah. so that you can enjoy all of the positive benefits of drinking wine without any of the negative remnants. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to circle back just a little bit on the entrepreneurial business side of things. So it sounds like you went from realizing that you had this early passion for wine and then the existing wines did not meet your standard in terms of performance or biohacking or your lifespan, health span goals. Did you have a background in winemaking? Did you have a background in wine country to go to, to start executing on, on making this possible? Uh, lots of people who live in Napa Valley experiment with winemaking at some point. I had yeah. made wine back in 2005, but it was just kind of a hobby project. Yeah. I consider hobby wine, anytime you make wine, you lose money doing it, <laughs> right? It's, it's just a hobby. So, and I only made a single vintage and really didn't even know much about it, employed a winemaker to make it. But that really didn't have anything to do with it. It's really my history with biohacking. You know, so I had adapted a ketogenic diet. And as my nutrition got super dialed in, I found I couldn't drink commercial wines anymore. They're making me feel bad. I was having negative remnants from them. They were taking me out of ketosis. They were just, I couldn't drink conventional wines anymore. Yeah. Didn't like the way they tasted. As my palate was changing, just and so I thought it was just a high alcohol. So I initially, as I started to biohack wine, as Dave Asprey says, the dry farm wines is the is the fanatic biohacker of wine. Yeah. As we started to biohack wine, it was like I thought it was just high alcohol. So I asked a friend of mine who I think is the smartest person in the wine business, I was like, you know, I want to make some low alcohol wine. How low can I get the alcohol? and still have it taste like wine. We talked about that. And in the course of that conversation, he said, have you tasted any of the low alcohol wines coming out of Europe? And I was like, had no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. So I, um, I went down to here in San Francisco to the kind of prestigious wine store here on 4th, on 4th Street called K&L. Yeah. I go down to K&L and I walk in, and I was like, could you show me some low alcohol wines? And the salesperson looked at me like I had a third eye because I'm sure the only person ever went in the store asking for low alcohol wines, right? And so in that process, he's like, well, you can turn it around. I didn't even know at that time that what was stated on the bottle wasn't required to be accurate, but you can just look at the bottle and you'll have to choose. So I chose some and I bought like a case and I took them home. Nothing over 12.5% was where I decided the kind of demarcation was. And I took them home and I poured about 75% of it down the sink, it wasn't drinkable, right? I kind of do the same thing again, but I go to this organic market called Byright, who I didn't know at the time, but most of Byright's wines happen to be natural wines. They're organic. Not all organic wines are natural, but all natural wines are organic. But it just so happened most of theirs were also natural, whether that was intentional or just because they were all organic, I don't know. But so I bought another case of these low-alcohol wines. I took them home, and I discovered that there's this one importer from Paris who I'm liking all of their wines. Like, I like the taste. I like the aesthetic, and they're also low-alcohol. So I call them up. Turns out it's an American living in Paris. And I learned from him that he tells me about natural wines. He's like, well, all of our wines are natural. I was like, well, aren't all wines natural? And he said, well, no, they're not here are the 
quantifications that make a wine natural. And so what I did next was because I was ketogenic and super interested in sugar contents, and I knew you could test for sugar in wine lab, I then took samples of the wines I liked most and I sent them to a lab. And then I started quantifying lab results with the aesthetic of wines that I liked and started to find this kind of formula for quantifying wine, yeah. right? And so to so that extent, my previous experience of living in Napa Valley and also making wine, I knew I had used these analogous labs before. Yeah. And this is still hobby mode. This is still just like, I want to Oh, this is still experience. This yeah. is just, just me, yeah. like, trying to figure out how to drink. <laughs> this is not a business. Yeah, this is hobby mode. And yeah. I'm sharing it with some biohacking friends of mine. This one friend in particular who he and I drank quite a bit together. So who was an extreme biohacker and cyclist and athlete. I started sharing these wines with him. He's also super foodie and interested in taste. And I started sharing these wines with him. And he was like, wow, dude, this is like amazing. Like, where can you buy these wines? And I was like, well, you can't. Right. I mean, you could, but you wouldn't know where what they were. Right. Right. And so from that, it was like from there, I contacted Dave Asprey of Bulletproof. And shortly thereafter, I decided to make it, try to make it a business. And we became the the only alcohol that he's ever really endorsed and the only alcohol ever at the Bulletproof conference. And we became kind of the official wine of Bulletproof. And that was sort of the beginning. And after that, I was a guest on his podcast. And I've been a guest on hundreds and telling the story of additives and why you should drink low alcohol and why natural farming matters and why irrigation is important and trying to educate people on just how to have a healthier drinking experience. Yeah. No, very cool. I've only had alcohol once so far in 2019 and it was a couple glasses of wine. So I'd be interested to try yours and see how that goes. What are the big things on your roadmap in 2019 and beyond? I mean, where do you see this going? Our business continues to explode because you feel better. There's no negative remnants. So our wine business is extremely robust and continues to be explosive in its growth. But personally, I, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I have recently began a experiment with fasting that I'm super excited about. So 2019 for me is really the year of fasting experiments. My current experiment is that I'm not eating on Monday, Tuesday, and to Wednesday night. So I'm doing a three-day fast every week. And then I'll continue eating only once per day on the remaining days. But after this experiment, I'm going to experiment with eating every other day. So this is kind of my year of fasting <laughs> experiments. Fasting has just been such a radical advancement in my wellness and I think anti-aging for me that I'm just really curious to explore what might be the optimal formula for me. Yeah. I'm very excited about the current experiment, not eating between Sunday and Wednesday. Yeah. So that's going to be, I think, most of my focus of Yeah, we'll have to stay in touch to see how that goes. And I know that we have a special link out for our HVMN and drive. We do. Wine. We have a special offer for your audience. It's a penny bottle of wine. They can find that offer at dryfarmwines, with an S, dot com forward slash HVMN. That's dryfarmwines forward slash HVMN. And then on all social media, we're Dry Farm Wines, so we're pretty easy to find. Cool. All right. Thanks, Todd. I'd love to follow the fasting journey and the wine journey, so appreciate Let's you coming in. catch up again on fasting. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for tuning in this week, everyone. If you want to learn more about HVMN and our offerings, visit www.hvmn.com forward slash pod. Also, by writing a review on our iTunes page and sending a screenshot to podcast at hvmn.com, we'll hook you up with $15 worth of HVMN store credit. Our last shout out goes to our listener survey, which lets us know who you are better so we can continue making episodes that you find most valuable. So visit go.hvmn.com.